having a good time, whether it's mystery thriller or it's, you know, belly laughing comedy, is good for our souls. And we always like to do something new that people haven't seen before. This is the Community of Theatre podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the community theatres, the local theatres, the amateur, educational, and outreach theatres, the not-for-profit theatres of all kinds, that stage over 25,000 productions across America every year. We're here to explore the tremendous range of what these theatres do, why they do it, and how you can become involved if you aren't already. The typical not-for-profit theatre stages somewhere in the vicinity of four to six productions a year, but who decides which shows those are going to be? Now, there are certain companies where the creative control rests with one person or a few founding members. Those are simple. Whoever's in charge, choose the season. But most theater companies, I think it's fair to say, are collective organizations. So how do you choose a small set of shows for the year collectively? To answer that, today I'm here with Trish Rigdon, Artistic Director of the Wimberley Players. Hello, Trish. Hi, how are you, Derek? Great, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. To set the scene, the Wimberley Players is in Wimberley, Texas, which is a small town, population around 3,000. And it's about half an hour southwest of Austin, but it is decidedly not a suburb of Austin. It is not on a major highway. All the roads in and out of town, unless it's changed very recently, are two-lane. And yet, it really defies the stereotype of a small Texas town in that it's very artistically minded. And since I first did a production here 15 years ago or so, there have been at all times at least two, sometimes three theater companies producing shows in this town. That's fantastic for, for such a tiny it's community. one of the reasons why my husband and I moved here. Really? Mm -hmm. How did you become familiar with Wimberley? Well, we, uh, my husband and I were looking for a place to eventually retire, and we decided that we wanted to go to the Hill Country because whenever we're not working in theater, mm -hmm. we are always out in nature. Um, you spend a lot of time in the dark in a theater, <laughs> yeah. and the next thing you want is to, to spend some time outside with nature. And so we, we looked at the Hill Country, and we were looking everywhere, and we, uh, we stayed at Airbnbs all over, mm -hmm. and Wimberley was one of our stops. And we just fell in love with this little town. And that very first time we were here, I'll remember it was Thanksgiving in 2017, mm -hmm. and I was looking through the newspaper, what is there to do here? And there was this little theater, the Wimberley Playhouse, mm -hmm. and the Wimberley Players. And I said, oh, let's go see what they are all about. Let's go see what they do. And we came, we saw I Hate Hamlet. Uh -huh. <laughs> and um, after that, we looked at the, the galleries and all of the other art mm -hmm. options here. There was music everywhere. It, was, yeah. it just felt like our kind of town. And as two people who spent their life in theater, this seemed like an ideal place to retire where we wouldn't have to change our interest, and just uh, do it a little differently. Yeah, it is a lovely place. And so the Wimberley Players is the oldest of the local theater production companies founded in 1979. We're recording in the green room of the Wimberley Playhouse, which has been the home of the players since 2006, when I believe it was renovated from a daycare? You know, I don't actually know what it was, it, what this building was. It was some, some it was a business, but that, I don't know what it was beforehand. That is my distant recollection. It could be incorrect, but that is the essence of the small town, you know, Flavor. Right, right. But the reason that I chose the players when I wanted to talk about 
play selection is that nearly as long as I've been involved with the group, I've been aware that there is a play reading committee. I remember showing up to rehearsals occasionally when there were a bunch of people sitting around a table and they were just finishing a meeting. But I never got a feel for exactly what they did other than that it has something to do with picking the season. So I was hoping that you could fill in the blanks there. So as the managing artistic director, I lead our artistic team. Mm -hmm. So we don't have committees, we have teams. Okay. Um, Sort of means more collaboration involved, right? And on the artistic team are uh, both members of the board and community members. Mm -hmm. And we are a small team. It's hard to get things done if you have too many people on a team. Mm -hmm. We're a small team of six people. It includes myself and our technical director, Todd Martin. And we meet every other week from the minute we finish picking the plays for one season Mm -hmm. until the time we're finished picking the plays. We meet every other week. But we first come up with a list of what are the plays we'd love to do that we've heard of or that we're interested in or that are classics or so forth. And we build a great big, huge list. Um, We have a database where we put them into. We put all the information about it, how many characters, you know, who's the playwright? Is it a woman? Is it a man? Is Mm -hmm. it it an inclusive play? Are there options for including, you know, for for multiracial casting? What are there options for? And then from that list, over a series of many, many meetings and many, many discussions, Mm -hmm. we try to narrow it down to about 20. Okay. Once we narrow it down to about 20, then we actually have a reading team that's in addition to us. Okay. And there are six more people on the reading team so that we have 12 people reading the plays. So what we do is each play has to be read by three different people, and all three people have to fill out a form that's got questions about themes and uh, artistic merit and potential problems or will it fit on our stage or, you know, those, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. And then we look at when all of that reading period is over, we look at what were the scores from those because there's the actual scores that you can give them. Then we look at what were the highest scores, what were the lowest scores, and we tend to go with what were the highest scores. Mm-hmm. And from that, then the artistic team comes back together and we discuss all of the feedback that we got from everyone involved in the process, and we narrow it down to the five productions that we're going to do for the year. So it takes somewhere in the neighborhood of seven or eight months to go through this process, but in that amount of time, you really have carefully considered what works for your community, what works, you know, where do you want to challenge your community, uh, where do you want to give them what they want, <laughs> Yeah, that kind of thing. So um, that's, in a nutshell, that's what we do. Okay. Yeah, that uh, kind of preempts a lot of the questions I have, but I'd like to go into to a lot of them in a little bit more depth. And apologies if, if you mentioned this, but I, you definitely mentioned that the artistic team contributes to the list of plays for consideration. Is that also true of the other, of the reading team? Anyone can give us anyone. It doesn't even have to be the reading team. Uh, You could be, uh, you Mm -hmm. could reach out to me and say, I think this play is fantastic. Would your reading team 
like to read it. Okay. You know, and we will put it in the list and then the artistic team will discuss it. The first discussion is usually based on what is the synopsis of the play? You know, how many characters are in the play? Is it heavy men, heavy women? Is it equally distributed? Is it period? Is it and, and so forth? So we, we discuss all of that information first. <laughs> and then, you know, do we foresee any any problems with it either logistically or do we perceive any problems with it thematically? Mm -hmm. uh, does it have a message that we don't really want to put out there or does it underscore what we hold dear? And that was one of the things I really wanted to ask about. Is there a kind of formalized system to try and say, here are the values we're working with? Does the theater have its own value statement or do you rely on the best judgment of all the participants in the team to contribute to a collective sense of, of ethics and values? Can I say both? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so one of the things that's really, really important to us is inclusivity mm -hmm. and making sure that we are providing productions that are not by all white men, for all white men. Right. Y you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things we look at really hard is, can this play be multiracially cast? Is any part of it not not work that way? Yes. But at the same time, we look at, are we representing the culture that that play is about appropriately? So, for example, one of the plays that came up on our we wish we could do list mm -hmm. uh, was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. However, unless you have an indigenous actor to play the part of Chief Brompton, right. you really cannot do that play. Uh, not in, in our world. So we need to be appropriate with how we cast. Um, and so we put it on the back burner and we will be in pursuit of and open to and looking for that particular actor or actors who might be able to audition for that part. And then we can consider that play for a future season. So we, we hold those, those are values that we hold very, very dear. And I would guess that inclusivity that creates a tension because a lot of the shows you would want to put on explicitly for the goal of being inclusive mm -hmm. require actors of color or exactly. of various specific ethnicities, exactly. backgrounds. And you have the issue of do you want transgender characters played by cis people? All of these things. Right. But at least historically, because I was most involved in this theater 10 years ago, mm -hmm. we would have a very hard time finding anyone who wasn't white. Though the culture of Wimberley is not stereotypical in what you might think of for a small town Texas, mm -hmm. uh, the demographics to a large degree are. It's, it's mm -hmm. a very white community. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it presents a problem there. So I think this year that tide has been turning. Mm -hmm. It certainly has been under my guidance as far as artistic directing is concerned. You know, I, I moved here from Houston. A, it's the most culturally diverse city in the United States. Lived in a, a multiracial uh, community mm -hmm. where, you know, there were very few uh, all-white people <laughs> yes. there. Um, so I, I just kind of see the world maybe a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And um, I was very lucky, for example, with Romeo and Juliet that's on our stage right now in that it is, it's very diverse, you know, right down to personal pronouns that people want to use, mm -hmm. which is one of the questions that we ask when we are, we have a form that actors fill out when they 
audition. And one of the questions that we ask is, what are your what personal pronouns do you prefer? Mm -hmm. So that we are being respectful of whatever their choices are. Mm -hmm. um, grammar aside, for some of us old people, it's, it's <laughs> sometimes hard. But that's our goal, is to be respectful. And I am not interested as a director, I am not interested in your skin color or your sexual orientation or any of that. What I'm interested in is, are you a, are you a good actor? <laughs> mm -hmm. Do you have the talent to portray this role? And I'm usually rewarded with that by having a, a very inclusive cast, just like I did on this one. So it's quite wonderful. Great. Yeah. All right, well, a number of these other questions that I have for you, I'd like to ask both in your capacity as the artistic director here and also as someone who's worked at the highest levels of professional theater. So would you mind filling in our listeners just uh, with the kind of high points of, of what you've done? I guess the highest point mm -hmm. of what I've done is uh, I was the associate director and associate producer and before it was all over with, also the costume designer <laughs> for Sir Peter Hall, mm -hmm. for the Peter Hall Company in the UK. And with him, I did 14 different productions mm -hmm. over a course of four years. We rehearsed and opened all of those productions in the UK. Uh, we rehearsed in London. We opened them at the Theatre Royal Bath, who was the producer of the work that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And then we toured those same productions across the UK, and we also toured a few of them here in the United States. Um, and as a result of that, I had the great privilege of working with some of the actors at the highest caliber of the profession, members of the Royal Shakespeare Company who had worked with Peter when he was the, uh, he was the founder of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Right. And so when he was the artistic director there, uh, we had many of those actors come to work with us with the Peter Hall Company. And film actors mm -hmm. came to us. It was, it was an experience that was probably the highlight of my career. And he was more than the director of the shows. He was my most important mentor and a very dear friend yeah. um, before it was all over with. So Yeah, I understand. He passed away in the past few years. He did. He passed yeah. away in um, 2017, I think it was. Oh, that long ago. <laughs> yeah, 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 2017. But what's fun about the production I'm doing right now, Romeo and Juliet, is Romeo and Juliet was the very first production that I did with him. Mm -hmm. That was here in the United States, out at Center Theater Group in uh, Los Angeles. Oh, okay. And I was in technical rehearsal here on the play when I realized that I was working on the play on the anniversary of his death. So it felt, uh, I, and I didn't plan it that way. It just, yeah. it just dawned on me while we were in technical rehearsal. But uh, um, I've also worked in regional theater here in the U.S., and regional theater would be League of Regional Theaters. So Cincinnati Playhouse mm -hmm. in the Park. I've worked in the Alley Theater in Houston. And so, I understand you also have some experience in academia. You were the director of the theater department at Rice University? Well, yeah, well it wasn't a department. Okay. It was a program within a department. Okay. So it started off as a program in the English department. I eventually got it moved and we combined it with the visual art department and it became the visual and 
dramatic art department, so VADA, if you will. We started off without having a theater major, and by the time I left in 2007, uh, I had successfully brought about a theater major for Rice University. I don't know what's happened to it since then, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there were some wonderful students who were there under my tenure, and they've gone on to professional theater careers, so that's pretty exciting, too. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. And I specifically bring all that up to illustrate that you have the combination of perspectives of both working at the local theater level and academia and the high professional level. And so I think you can speak to a, a range of, of perspectives. Given that, one of the things I was wondering is a lot of theater seasons seem to fall into the pattern where they have a murder mystery each year, a musical each year, and you can say you know, three or four more categories of thing. Is that good idea, bad idea? Why is that? I think what you're trying to do, or what we are trying to do here at the Wimberley Players with that is to make sure that we are giving our audiences some variety, mm -hmm. a little bit of what they are accustomed to a little bit of what they recognize. And, you know, you don't want to become a theater that does all heavy drama mm -hmm. because you're only going to draw a certain audience with that. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to become a theater that does all lighthearted comedies because you would only draw a certain, right? Yes. Uh, now, there are some theaters who are all musicals mm -hmm. all the time. That's perfectly all right. But mu musicals are very expensive yes. to put on because the rights are more expensive, the demands are more expensive, uh, there's musicians to pay, you know, all of that. So they're much, much more expensive. And the cast are usually much larger. Um, it's hard to find musicals that are for small cast. So you're limited when you're a smaller theater in, in what you can do. This next season in 2023, for example, we are doing a musical, mm -hmm. but we've moved it from summer to Christmas. We are doing a mystery thriller, mm -hmm. uh, an Agatha Christie, and then there were none. But they hadn't done that necessarily every year in the past. Right. Right. And then we always try to have a comedy because people love comedy, right? Mm -hmm. And in this case, we chose a classic comedy. So we could combine two things. We have a classic and a comedy. So we're doing the importance of being earnest ah, okay. as our opening, right? Mm -hmm. And we always like to do something new that people haven't seen before. And although Sense and Sensibility, which is Jane Austen adaptation, yes. is very familiar to folks, we're doing the newest one that was adapted by Kate Hamill. So it's kind of done in a different way. Okay. It won't be a reality-based, uh, you know, it won't be realism theater. Mm -hmm. It will be more abstract than that oh. with with costumes mainly suggesting the period and, and maybe some furniture pieces suggesting the period, but then having real fun with the way you present it. Okay. Yeah. And then the musical that we found for f six people, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is small for a musical, right? Yes. Oh, yes. It follows on the heels of what we did last summer. Was it last summer? Yes. We did Nonsense, which was mm -hmm. five women nuns, right? Right. It went so well, and it had it actually had a following all its own of people who catch the nun uh, 
everywhere they go, the nuns, there's like 10 of these nun plays, right? Uh-huh. And uh, so we're like, well, there's one for Christmas. Let's move our, let's see if Christmas time will be a holiday time, will be a time. I, I want to understand, it. make sure I understand you correctly. There is a, a group of people who just travel to see the nonsense series of musicals wherever they are? I would say there's a group of fans yes. who will go see any of the series of these nun plays written by Dan Goggin anytime they are wherever close to where they are. I don't know that they're traveling to go see it. Although when we were doing Nonsense, we got lots of folks from out of town who yeah. came in just to see the show and they absolutely adored it. That is So we hope that works for Christmas. <laughs> I, I am aware that there are a lot of particular shows and I wish I could remember any of the names now, but there are names for the fandoms of Jekyll and Hyde, the musical, and, and for fandom, and for a lot of musicals in particular. But I, I was unaware that there was a particular fandom for... for that that was a thing, huh? Well, for, for this particular series of shows, and they must have a name for it, too. So I'm going to have to look that up. I'll oh. put it in the show notes. Well, let me know when you find out. <laughs> I will do. <laughs> then I can market it that way, you know, mm-hmm. reach course. out to that group. <laughs> yeah, they might have their own mailing list, Facebook groups, who knows? <laughs> I feel like there's there's slightly more to explore on, on that topic. Is so I, I certainly understand from a keeping the audience engaged perspective how that all plays out. Is that artistically valuable? And by that, I'm still talking about having representatives of a certain type of show every year. And I don't think that the Wimberley players in particular is is hyper regimented about that. Um, a lot of theaters do one musical a year for you. The reasons you said, there's budgetary reasons, and I think there are probably other factors that restrict that. But is it is there any artistic merit in particular to having a murder mystery every year? So I think artistic merit is sometimes, um, you know, there's something to be said for having fun. <laughs> Everything doesn't have to be a heavy-weighted message, mm-hmm. right? Although... If you have the right director involved in any production, there will be themes underlying what seems to be merely fun that can be brought out under the hands of a adept director. Mm-hmm. And it will cause your audience to see it in, in possibly a new light. But there is something to be said for just giving your audience something that allows them to be transported for two hours and not have to think about the weight of the world outside. Right. And to leave the theater feeling good and shored up for what they have to face in their week or their month ahead. Mm-hmm. Having a good time, whether it's mystery thriller or it's, you know, belly laughing comedy, is good for our souls. Yeah. So there is an artistic reason for doing that. Okay. Right? Almost as important as challenging your audience with important messages. Do you take into account that some, I guess I'm mainly thinking here about some shows being like child appropriate or teen appropriate. To what degree do you take into account that some shows just aren't going to be appropriate for your whole audience? I would say that we think about what portion of the audience may not appreciate a particular piece, Mm -hmm. but it is not the overriding factor for us to choose that piece. 
we are not going to shy away from subjects that audience members are not happy with. Mm-hmm. We're going to present those stories too. Because presenting stories from different cultures, presenting, and by cultures, I mean everything from ethnic backgrounds to mm-hmm. different lifestyles. Those things are important too, because it's when we see on stage, or in film for that matter, mm-hmm. when we see that there's not much difference between us as people as we would like to think, it brings about a certain amount of acceptance in the world. Right. So we're not we're not going to shy away from And that's from that's the whole premise I think behind why representation matters, right? And I agree that's in- incredibly important and theater is one very valuable vehicle to Absolutely. to go about Absolutely. doing that. You know, we're we are afraid of what we don't understand mm-hmm. and we don't understand what we're not exposed to. People tend to make a lot of assumptions about things without knowing what they're making assumptions about, really. Um, And so when we can present those worlds and those environments on stage in a, you know, where you're safe. Yes. (laughs) You're not having to have an encounter with those people. You're just, you're just watching. Right. And you you become a little bit more familiar with that lifestyle or that, that world or that, that community. Um, Then you can open your heart a little bit, or at least that's what we hope. Open your heart and your mind a little bit. If we can just, you know, get a crack in there, then we will have done our job. I've always thought if you leave the theater discussing with your partner or your your seatmate or whoever at dinner what you hated about the play, we've succeeded because you're talking about it. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about it more deeply than if it was just, you know, popcorn fare. If you're discussing after the play what you liked about it, We've succeeded. If you never think of it again and you never talk about it again, if it just went in and out, <laughs> yeah. we failed. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've definitely taken a stand about not taking ticket sales into account in terms of, well, if you need to do something because it's right, you're willing to take a hit on ticket sales. Kind of looking in the opposite direction, are there things that you'll take into account or that you think theater should take into account that just boost ticket sales? Um, I think every theater has what we call a cash cow. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of theaters, that cash cow is Christmas Carol. That play will bring (laughs) in people who never go to the theater any other time except Christmas to see a Christmas Carol. It becomes a tradition with their families, you know, that type of thing. And those are important, too, because when you make money off of a production, it helps you put on all the other plays that will not make money. So you right. so you're trying to balance the season out, mm-hmm. right? Now, we don't have a cash cow here. And in fact, there's um, you know, we're we're like Zach Theater does a Christmas carol. We we don't really, you know, people are going to go there right. to see that, right? And so And for context, the Zach is the premier professional theater in Austin, which is close enough to, to Wembley that, like you say, if, if people are going to go see A Christmas Carol, that is probably a, gonna a go reasonable there. draw. We lost power for a moment there. We're picking up again. And I was asking about the, the things that you might take into consideration in terms of boosting ticket sales and perhaps intentionally choosing shows with large casts to get large numbers of attendees. Is that a real thing or is that just a... We don't choose a play 
here at the Wimberley Players, we don't choose a play because it's a large cast and will draw mm-hmm. larger audiences. And that only works to a certain degree anyway. Mm-hmm. In a theater like this, where the actors are volunteers, a lot of the actors are starting out their careers, yes. and this is where they're getting their experience. You know, and then there are actors who have day jobs and Acting is not the highest paid profession in the world, except for a very few people. Yes. And so if you need to support a family, it might not be the best option mm-hmm. for you. So you'll have a, a higher paying day gig, as it will, mm-hmm. and you'll act as a, a hobby, more or less. Right. Not that you're any less serious about it. It's just you have to work around and the that, day gig. And that absolutely describes my own involvement with theater and a lot of other people's, too, mm-hmm. that I have been in shows with. And I, I say worked in shows with, and I, I take it seriously. And a lot of us take it seriously, but it is it is just a, it's what we love. It, right. it is not a serious career option for a lot of us. And, you know, for a lot of us will never know if it was because we didn't choose to pursue it. But you can you can build a life that supports artistic endeavors in your free time. Exactly, exactly. And I find that oftentimes I have found that actors at that level and designers at that at this level mm-hmm. are every bit as talented and professional as those who are working and making a living at professional theater. So just because you're involved in professional theater doesn't mean that you're better than. Mm-hmm. It just means you got lucky, quite honest, mm-hmm. for the most part. You got lucky. Not that they don't work hard. They do. And they worked hard at that. But there's a certain amount of sacrifice that you have to do in order to make it at that level. And oftentimes that sacrifice involves sacrificing friendships, family, relationships, all of that to to single-mindedly pursue something like that. Well, And since we're on the, the subject of things from the actor's perspective... In general, the theaters in this area are not repertory theaters. They're not troops. They don't have a core group of actors who are formally part of the organization. But they do have a community. Mm -hmm. And they have people who come up back over and over again. And people who, you know, move in and out of the board over time because they're just so involved in that particular theater. Do you take who those people are, what their talents are, into account in choosing shows? I would say to some degree, it would be insane to choose some plays without knowing that people you know can manage the leads mm-hmm. will be coming to auditions. Yeah. <laughs> that would that would not work. To just, you know, we're doing Streetcar Named Desire next year. Mm-hmm. To schedule that without having some idea of who might be able to fill that role would be a little bit risky, probably more than a little bit risky. Mm-hmm. That said... In our world, we also are adamantly opposed to precasting. So while I may have the perfect person in mind for a particular role, and I will invite that person to audition, and that person will have to audition, I can't cast from not being there at an audition, it might also be true that somebody new will show up that I didn't know Mm -hmm. who might be even better. So we kind of we're kind of playing both worlds in that regard. And in this setting where we are right now, this is a not-for-profit theater. I don't know if you'd agree with the term community theater, but it is a theater that is part of the community that serves the community. In that sense, it's community theater. And so I see why you have those considerations when you are working at 
the high professional level. Is that the same thing? Or no. is it much more appropriate to say, oh, we have a person who is a star. We can make a star vehicle for them. Um, let me use a, a couple of examples. For example, the Alley Theater in Houston, mm -hmm. Texas. They have a resident company. Okay. Those folks, those are actors who are on salary, and they are as cast. So they choose their plays, certain number of their plays or productions, based on the talents of those that specific company. What what stretches that company? What's good for that company? What what will work for that company? Do we have these roles? They also look at their company itself and say, you know, we need an ingenue, we need some character players, we need, mm -hmm. you know, we need some heavy leads, we need, you know, that kind of thing. So they build a company that works for the majority of plays, and then they choose plays that work for the majority of the, of the company. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Okay. Then there are plays that you would want to invite actors who are not a member of your company to because they can fulfill that particular role best, right. in other words. And then, you know, they still, but they still audition. You know, they'll go to New York and audition. They'll have open auditions right there in, in Houston, so forth. Now, when you reach a higher levels, for example, say you're doing a national tour, you're doing something maybe off-Broadway that you think you're going to take to Broadway, mm -hmm or you're just going to go straight to Broadway, something like that, you absolutely would not say you're going to do this play unless you knew exactly who was going to portray that role. Uh -huh. You know, you would have a wish list of, you know, I, I these five people. If one of these five people can't do that role, we can't go forward, Okay. if, if that makes sense. So it, it's just it's just a different... Well, but there's more at stake right. as far as financially is, is concerned. There's more at stake. So you have to be responsible. Even at the highest professional level of Broadway, mm -hmm. producers can't do it for the fun of it. They have to make oh, money. No, They've the, the got to pay at, the bills. At which they can least do it for the fun yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to pay the bills. And it's not easy. So in a, in a very real sense, the, the local theater level is the most privileged in some ways in that we have the flexibility to make decisions because they are right on an ethical level rather than having all these True. financial... I mean, you can't go crazy. You can't do show after show. As as you mentioned earlier, you can't do heavy drama after heavy drama and expect to have an audience who continues to support you right. through donations and ticket sales and everything. Correct. But there is... I think, more flexibility there. So, yeah, there is more flexibility there. And more willingness to to see what you're doing uh, without judgment first, mm -hmm. if that makes sense, yes. right? So if you're paying $150 for a ticket, you expect a certain level, right? Mm -hmm. But here, you're paying for a play, you pay $22 for a ticket, or for a musical, you're paying $30 for a ticket. You're willing to, to go along for the ride just a little bit more. And then when we surpass your expectations, which hopefully we always do, you feel like you got more than your money's worth. And that's, you know, that that's important to us too. So, and I continually hear from patrons, you know, that the acting level is always so wonderful and the production levels are always so wonderful. You know, people who come new to us are like, right. they had no idea there was this caliber of theater in such a small town. And right. I'm like, yeah, we're kind of proud of what we do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a recurring theme I have noticed within what I continue to just call community theater. I think community is treated as kind of a four-letter word because 
if there is a lowest level of production quality somewhere in the world, it's going to be at a local level where people are trying things for the first time. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. the shows that get produced that, you know, I have seen as an audience member, because I can't be objective about the shows that I've been in, but I've seen a lot of local small theater, and there is a wide range of quality. Things that are put on by what, by any rationale, would be called a community theater can be very amateurish, but they can also be very high quality production-wise, acting-wise, and just very moving experiences. Yeah, and you know, here occasionally we get actors who have been professional theater. Right. They've worked as actors in equity theaters. They've moved to Central Texas for whatever reason, and mm -hmm. they're looking for an outlet, and they're more than happy. You know, when you're in theater and that's been your life, you almost don't care what level the theater is. You yeah. just need to be involved yes. in theater, right? Whether you're behind the scenes, whether you're directing or you're on the stage, there's just this place in your heart that has to be filled up by being involved in theater. Yep. For that reason, we draw a variety of levels mm -hmm. of actors. And sometimes you can tell the, the variety of the levels, but as a director sure. myself, you know, my job is to make each one of the actors the best they can be. Right. That's what I want for them. And that sometimes means being a teacher, if it's somebody new to theater, and sometimes it means being that director who gives the more experienced actor higher level notes. And, and by notes, I mean not instructions, but, you know, mm -hmm. how can we do this better? You know, right. I'm not sure I understand what your subtext is there. You know, that kind of thing. So you have to be able to work with all different levels and whoever it is, whether they're former equity actors or they're newbies starting out, you yes. have to be able to raise them up in every single case. Well, to tie that thought into the, the primary topic of today, do you take into consideration in the play selection process, is this going to have roles for the range of experienced actors that I have? Is it going to have a few entry-level roles for people who might be auditioning for the first part? I don't think we take that into consideration when we're choosing the play. Mm -hmm. I think what we do is take that into consideration at the audition process. Okay. Um, you know, we've got strong actors for these roles. We can give these actors who don't have as much experience an opportunity and they will, uh, you know, the truth is that they'll always rise in occasion to having higher level actors involved and they mm -hmm. learn, you learn by osmosis and right. from experience, right? At the same time, your company's only going to be as good as your weakest player, because that will stand out if you you don't give that actor what they want. And so, or not what they want, but what they, what need. they need. Right, right. Yeah, it's very easy to draw focus <laughs> right. unintentionally if you right. are unaware right. of it. So the, I, I would say then the, the weight on the shoulders belongs to the director in that regard to balance that out. I don't think we are a place for someone who's never been on a stage before to take on a serious role, you know, a big role. Right. You got to start out with something something small. But to your point about community theater and being a four-letter word, I don't think people are aware that most community theaters, not most, I guess, but a lot of community theaters are members of the American Association of Community Theaters. Mm -hmm. It's a professional organization. You pay dues to belong to it. They have conferences 
just like Theater Communications Group has conferences for the professional theaters. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sharing and learning with your peers. There's a listserv whenever any of us has an issue that we need to conquer from the administrative side and whether or not you're using QuickBooks to... Uh, has anybody ever had this problem with an actor before, you know, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's a listserv, and, and so all of the directors, all of the artistic directors and managing directors across the country are sharing information in that regard. So uh, I, ha I would hate to think that people thought that community theater was a four-letter word. My daughter is an actress, and she got her start, uh, of course, at in college, but some of the first productions she did were in a community theater. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very much the birthplace of a lot of careers. It's where you can get some experience before you, you know, have to ask somebody to pay you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, was, I was curious about this, and I was thinking of making a whole episode topic out of it at some point, but I'll ask since we're on the topic already, what is the relationship between academia um, let me back up and say that I asked this question because when I first started doing shows here, again, that was 15 years ago or so, the relationship between this theater and the theater department at Texas State University, which is 20 minutes away in San Marcos, mm -hmm. it seemed to be tense. And my impression, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but my impression was that there was a policy that students within that theater department were not allowed to audition for shows outside of that theater department. And there was a sense that you know, if they went somewhere else, if they did something at a community theater, it would just bring them down. It would stunt their development. Uh, and, I, and again, I might be projecting something that wasn't there, but I get the impression that there are at least pockets of academia that feel that way. That relationship changed, I am well aware, and the university has worked very closely with this theater in more recent years. But are, are, are you familiar with that attitude? Is that a thing? Is that a problem? I think there are universities who are, let's just say, very proud of their programs mm -hmm. and their ability to prepare a student for life in the professional theater. But at the same time, there are universities that are preparing students for a fulfilled life. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean a career in professional theater. Let's face it, there are more students involved in theater programs across the country that are ever going to make a living in theater. It's just the way it is. The competition professional theater is fierce, mm -hmm. and you have to be at the top level and, and the best. And not everyone who loves theater is necessarily the best at it. That doesn't mean there's not a place for everyone, right? right. I don't know how many folks are uh, enrolled in the theater department at Texas State, for example, but I do know that they have a, a policy for uh, their BFA acting students as opposed to the students who are in, in production and performance okay. who are doing a BA in production performance. So the BFA acting students they do have a policy that they can they can only do outside shows with permission. Okay. So when I was about to audition for Romeo and Juliet, I reached out to the head of the department and asked and, and, and just said, FYI, mm -hmm. I've got a lot of uh, submissions for auditions that seem to be Texas State students, and I know you have this policy. Right. I just want to give you a heads up. And if I need to reach out to you about anybody specific before I even offer them the role, 
you know, let me know. And we had mm-hmm. a discussion and they said, yes, it's their first priority is that they have to they have to audition here, and we're not sure it's going to work out with your production here to meaning do that. That, that, that students need to audition with, within State, the school first. Within the school first, right. right. But at the same time, I said, okay, I said, I, I completely understand that and completely respect that. Mm-hmm. I hope it would be taken into consideration that this an opportunity for any particular student to work with somebody who's had my background in Shakespeare mm-hmm. might not come around again in their time in school. Mm-hmm. And you know, they said, "Good point. <laughs> um, good point." So yeah, they do have that, but I don't think it comes from looking down their nose at community theater at all. I don't. I don't believe that. I hope not, because I've also, for example, had the uh, professor of stage combat came in and was our fight director for Romeo and Juliet. Oh, great. And we've had voice dialect coaches come mm-hmm. from come from there. I mean, it's just, it's more symbiotic than that, yeah. right? Um, and that happens at a lot of theaters. So I think it's, maybe it's something that's, that's changing. I can't speak to what happened before I Right, came. right. And I know in this particular case, that is the relationship between that university and this theater has definitely improved over the years drastically. Yeah. Um, but I, I was just more curious about the general attitude out in, in the, the wider world that I don't have experience well, with. Well, and I can also say that I mentioned that some of my former students at Rice have gone on to professional theater careers. Mm-hmm. I have one student who is now teaching acting at University of Texas. And I reached out to her. Her name's Kristen Davis. Mm -hmm. I reached out to her and said, you know, uh, I don't know if this is possible or not possible, but here is an audition notice and we need stage managers, too. And, Uh you know, we have an internship for that. And, you know, all this. And warmly embraced. Yeah. It went out to all of the students. So, and UT has a highly respected program. That's great. So I don't think that's a widespread attitude. It might be the attitude of a few, you know, maybe Ivy League type schools. I don't, you know, maybe Juilliard and (laughs) Carnegie Mellon or something like that. Maybe those those schools. Well, I could uh, keep asking you questions and going on tangents for hours and hours, uh, but I think we've certainly gone through all the questions I had about the play selection process. Is there anything else you wanted to add? On that topic? Just that it is a, it's a fun process. Mm -hmm. You get to read a lot of plays Mm -hmm. and that we welcome to our reading team anyone who wants to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have any kind of expertise. Uh, You just have to have the ability to read three plays over the course of about a month. (laughs) Uh, actually, no, it's more like five plays. So oh. each each play has to be read by three people, and every reader gets about five plays to read. Yeah. And a large reading team, a larger reading team would be even better yeah. because it's a wider spread, number of people of different ages and so forth. That's one thing we try to do is make sure that people from all ages and all groups are trying to read the plays. Uh, there are new theater groups springing up all the time. Is this a structure that you would advise new groups adopt, having a a formal play reading committee and having a formal rubric and everything? I think when you're starting out, it's probably a good idea. I mean, the pressure on one person Mm -hmm. to choose a season 
is immense. And if you're just starting out with your theater group, you may or may not have that expertise yet. You know, would it be easier if I was the only person that had to decide what the plays were going to be? Mm-hmm. Possibly. But it also is a lot of pressure. Right. There's some comfort in knowing that you're not the only one who thinks that's a great play. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a good model for non-professional theater to, to, to go by. Well, thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Where can people find out about the Wimberley Players? Well, easy, wimberleyplayers.org. You can navigate to the auditions there. You can see our our season there. On our website, we have news and blogs and information about the current show. And, you know, we only have two employees, and I'm the one that's keeping up all that information. So if it's not current, it's because I haven't got to it yet. So (laughs) hang in there. All right. This has been the Community of Theatre podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review. If you have feedback on the show or what we discussed today, if you have suggestions for future episodes, I'd love to hear from you. You can email the show directly, communityoftheatre at gmail.com. You can find the show on Facebook. Just search for the Community of Theatre page. Or you can tweet at me directly, at Derek Smoots. That's D-E-R-E-K-S-M-O-O-T-Z. Thanks for listening, and if you're currently in a production, break a leg.